You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The French are right. If there's one thing you can count on, it's change. No matter what happens, circumstances will change, forcing us to adapt. How's that for a broad statement? And there are some sweeping changes afoot. The planet is changing, population is increasing, temperatures are rising. Arable land is disappearing, so are other natural resources. But then again, technological innovation is coming at us fast. Maybe there'll be a technological fix for a changing planet. And what about our own adoption of technology? Remember landline phones? Didn't think so. Now there are cell phones, Blackberries, iPods, iPhones, Skype, a techno onslaught. How are we adapting? I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak. In this hour of Big Picture Science, some thoughts on how we humans move with the times. Let's begin by going to the Big Apple. I'm uh, walking down 8th Avenue in New York City. Cars are going by, and rising above me is the product of a hundred years, at least, of architectural and engineering ingenuity. It's hard to say. Tall buildings, skyscrapers. The city is a vertical jungle, and one scientist here wants to turn at least some of these high-rises into farmland. That man is Dixon Despommier. He's at Columbia University, just a few dozen blocks north of here. Before I talk with him at length, let's let him outline why the city is a place for farms. It would be hard to do the kind of farming that I'm thinking about in an existing building. I think we need to build new buildings that are designed for plants, but the idea is, sure, a skyscraper that's got a farm inside of it. Right there in the middle of New York City. Right there in the middle of New York, or very, very close to New York City. I'm a trained parasitologist, so I know a good parasite when I recognize one, and a city is probably the biggest manifestation of the concept of parasitism on the planet. We don't know what to do with trash. In fact, we are the only species on the planet that evolved in a direction that created waste that the rest of the world can't use. What do you do with that? And the answer is we spend billions of dollars a year trying to get rid of it and trying to keep it out of our sight. We call that sanitization. He's right about the urban waste, of course, and not all of it is out of sight. Walking down the street here, it's trash day, at least in this part of the city, of New York City, and there are piles and piles of trash out here on the sidewalk in big bags. Some of it comes up as high as my chest, my shoulders. Uh, There's a pillow, some furniture, (laughs) a lot of food. Dr. Despommier is the author of The Vertical Farm, Feeding the World in the 21st Century. But before we find out how a vertical farm will mitigate this pile up in front of me, we need to know how farming has taken its own toll on the planet. And for that, we need some historical perspective. 
the first sentence of my book begins 15,000 years ago, there wasn't one single farm on the planet. And there might have been a million people alive at that time, spread throughout the entire world. And then around 11,000 years ago, as far as we can date it, but I, the reason why I said 15,000 is so maybe we'll find one that's earlier than 11,000 years ago. That is a farm, some crop that was actually manipulated by people. But let's just take the, the date that the anthropologists give us is 11,178 years ago in the Balsas Valley in Mexico <laughs> as the beginning of corn. Right. On that Tuesday. <laughs> On that Tuesday, right at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> it seemed like a good idea at the time, right? It wasn't. <laughs> because what happened was that all around the world, farming occurred. It's almost like somebody threw a switch. And in many different places, uh, unless you believe in aliens, and I, <laughs> perhaps I'm talking to the right person here. <laughs> An alien being says, you know, you guys should be farming. You shouldn't be you know, living, cutting, and gathering like you're doing. Careful about planting that idea in people's heads because I think people <laughs> believe that already. Um, but what you're saying is that farming started almost simultaneously in, in at least four different parts of the world. I believe right. Mexico that's was right. one. The Middle East is another place, and China is another place. And believe it or not, on the island of Borneo, uh, for very unusual crops, okay? And all, in all those places, it was all about... Living at the edge of your ecological zone, so you're away from the, your predator species, so that you don't get predated, so to speak, or hunted down by some a carnivore. And so that's why we're pushed into desert situations and up in the mountains in Peru and in the Balsas Valley of Mexico. We weren't in too much danger in those places, but we had to stay put. So how do you do that? And the answer is you grow your own food. So here we are today with a landmass the size of South America devoted to farming. That's an astounding revelation. When you put it in those terms and you look at geologic time as billions of years and us being alive as a primate for millions of years, farming has only been around for thousands of years. And in just the last hundreds of years, we have accelerated this process to the point now where we're all worried about the rainforests it's disappearing. That's the biggest worry. I mean, if we keep going like this, we're going to eat ourselves out of house and this home. Now, humans turn to farming. It is interesting why we did so in the first place, and then mm -hmm. we can talk about, uh, again, the results. Mm -hmm. uh, we were hunter-gatherers yep. for a long time, running around, happy, catching things. Happy, happy, ha happy. How happy. do you know we were happy? <laughs> well, you know, you can see <laughs> smiles on their faces <laughs> as they draw the cave walls and stuff. <laughs> but so chasing down our food or yeah. gathering and so forth, yeah. why decide to stay put? What was, what was so yeah. appealing about farming? So it allowed us to stay put, or maybe that's why we stayed put. Which yep. came first? Yeah. Well, I think that hunter and gatherers stayed put if the hunting and gathering was good. So if you go to the Middle East, for instance, where the oases are, and where the plants that they were eating grew around the borders of those, they learned very quickly that by just carrying water back from the oasis and the grain that you could collect around the oasis, by actually putting water on the grain, you could get it to grow closer to where you lived, which was not near the oasis. Why wasn't it near the oasis? Because that's where all the animals went to, <laughs> to drink. <laughs> you didn't want to stay there for too long because otherwise you might get attacked by a lion or a, a tiger or something else. So we chose to live away from those resources, but near them. Mm -hmm. And so it, it offered us a level of comfort and sustainability and a refuge. And Simply by looking at those wonderful accidents of dropping seeds inadvertently along with the water inadvertently, 
you said, hey, this wet stuff grows that dry stuff, <laughs> you know, and then they started to put names on it, and then they started to invent written language to teach people how to do it. They invented mathematics. They didn't invent it, but they discovered it to predict the movement of stars, to predict what the seasons were. So they had calendars based on astronomical observations. Uh, they had... Uh, mathematics, which was also based in the same thing. And then, they, of course, then they had to account for the failure of all this every now and then. And they didn't blame themselves. They blamed the gods of, of uh, farming <laughs> and plants. And so the Egyptians had wonderful gods on this level, and so did the Incas and the Aztecs, etc. So we invented religion at the same time. In fact, the, the Egyptians, <clears throat> I understand, according to you, worshipped a dung beetle Correct. as one of their gods, along with Ra, Indeed. the sun god. Indeed. But a dung beetle, why? A dung beetle. Oh, it's the lowest form of life, and yet it's the highest form of life. The scarab, or the dung beetle, it's the same animal, uh, was observed to do the following. Uh, little kids would see them playing in the dung. Of course, little kids like to do that too, right? <laughs> <laughs> so they, they could behave like dung beetles, but they couldn't do what a dung beetle did. What a dung beetle did was take a ball of that, that it rolled into a perfect sphere, and roll it towards the hole that it had dug. And then it catches on a thorn. And it tries, and it tries, and it tries. It's almost like looking at Sisyphus. But it's really like looking at Robert Bruce, observing the spider make the web in the cave. Because eventually it pushes the ball off the thorn and gets the job done. So in that way, it's not like Sisyphus. Because yeah, well, that's the, true. the dung beetle is successful, right. and it, it pushes correct. the ball. That's and right. what the Egyptians noticed is that then out of that space where yes. the dung beetle went, along with this ball of right. mud, right. Um, came a the plant. The next spring, the next spring, up rose life out of this place that looked as though it was taking the waste of the world and disposing of it. And in essence, what it had, of course, dung is almost half living material. It's partially digested hay that the animal has digested, actually the microbes in its stomach digest, but half of that comes out the way it went in. So that's still available, including all of the seeds. And so and the so grass seeds would come up. And then a dung beetle would come up. So it looked as though the dung beetle was making life happen. And so these creatures were worshipped? They were worshipped. Now, one thing that's come up as we're talking about farming often, and it actually, you could tie it into NASA's mantra, which is, if you want to find life, follow the water. That's Absolutely. what NASA says. Absolutely. That's why we're looking for water on, on different bodies in the, in the and universe. And finding it. <laughs> and finding it. And where we find it, we hope we'll find life yes. one day. Yeah. But what's key to farming, and when we talk about the earliest farms, is water. And not all places this have water naturally, this and we brought true. water in. And yes. this is where some of the problems have been with farming, is that the uh, toll that it's taken by the irrigation system, not only by taking water from other places, diverting water, but the runoff. And I wonder if you could yes. talk a little bit about that. Of course. Well, this is called the water planet, isn't it? But most of the water on this planet, at least, is not drinkable, at least to us. All right, if you're a seagull, you can drink it. If you're an albatross, you can certainly drink it. They can drink seawater? They can, because they have a salt gland in their nose that actually takes the salt out of the water and pushes it out of their nose. And it, they can drink seawater. Otherwise, how would they survive? So it's quite an amazing world out there, isn't it? But there are very few other animals that live on land that can actually eat something that's very salty and get away with it. So farming, as we know it today, and even as we knew it, Back in the olden days, when the Incas and the Aztecs and the 
the Mexicans in the Balsas Valley and the, and the Anasazi in the American Southwest and the people living in the Middle East, they all needed water. And there was little of it. So it forced us to use our brains. And we invented these elaborate irrigation systems. Today, we're still doing that, of course, but on a massive scale. So you take a guess how much water agriculture in the world uses now. Of all the liquid fresh water on the planet, which there's precious little of, they use 70% of the liquid water. And that's excluding Lake Baikal. You know, if they could drink Lake Baikal dry, they would anyway, but it's so remote that it's going to be difficult for them to get to that one. Can you say a little bit about runoff and why sure. runoff is oh, a yes, problem absolutely. and it, it is incredibly destructive yeah, right. in yes, many ways? Well, I mean, it is the most destructive force that we generate from our everyday activities because the fact is that you have to irrigate. And when you irrigate, you also have to use these other agrochemicals in order to get the plants to grow because the soil itself rapidly becomes depleted because these are energy-intensive situations. The plants are not normal plants. These are not biodiverse uh, ecosystems that we're supporting. This is a monoculture that we have bred clean of all of its wildness. And so it's totally dependent on us. But another way to look at that, of course, is that we are totally dependent on it. Whatever the case, when the farmer irrigates, he over or she over irrigates. The plants can't possibly drink that much water. But there's no efficient way of getting a lot of water to plants unless you use a spray technology, which they do in some cases out in the West to grow hay. But most of the rows that you see where the water goes down the rows or most of the drip, even the drip irrigation systems are constantly on, that's wasteful. And that water soaks into the ground or during a flash flood, of course. All of those agrochemicals and everything else gets swept into the nearest body of water. If that happens to be a river, 90% of the rivers of the world lead into the ocean. And if you look at the estuaries where the rivers join the ocean around the world, there are very few that are not impacted by agricultural runoff. In fact, the United States Department of Agriculture readily admits that agricultural runoff is our number one problem in the United States. Hold on to that thought. We'll hear more from Dixon Pommier in a moment and why vertical farms may give rise to hope, not to mention elevate your opinion of vegetables. You're listening to Early Adapters on Big Picture Science. Welcome back to Big Picture Science. We continue with Molly's interview with Dixon Pommier about the concept of moving farms into the city as a way of easing the stress on the land and other natural resources. Dr. Pommier is Emeritus Professor of Public Health and Microbiology at Columbia University and the author of the vertical farm. Now that we've heard the case for why we need an ascending farm, Molly wondered just what would it look like and how it would work. I would love you to come at night so that you can't see the building. But what you will see are the grow lights and the plants. Because it'll, it'll be nearly transparent. It'll, it'll be totally transparent, in fact. That's the kind of building I imagine is a totally transparent building. The, the Apple Store on Fifth Avenue in New York City is a good example of a totally transparent structure. And if you imagine that much larger than that, and not made out of glass necessarily. And I should say in this case, you mean Apple <laughs> computers, not selling apples. Exactly right. Because we exactly. are talking about farming. <laughs> that's right. That's okay. right. But just all, almost all glass or just very strong plastic. Yes. There are tons of choices out there to choose from. But what you'll be struck with is the fact that there are multiple layers of plants inside each one of these floors, and there are multiple floors. And then the next thing you see is a green market at the, at the first floor. And if you look up at the top floor, you might see a restaurant. And what you're really seeing is a food-generating uh, building 
which takes pure ingredients, mixes them together, grows them in a special way, and provides you with, well, whatever you want, we can grow indoors. So the building is transparent because you need the sunlight. That's correct. So that's step one. That's right. Or you need a combination of sunlight. And if you want to grow 24 hours a day, which you can do, by the way, because plants will grow for you on a 24-hour basis, then you have to supplement that with grow lights. And mostly they're uh, light-emitting diode lights. Low energy use, high give back in terms of visible spectrum, just the two spectra that the plants need, not ours. What I find fascinating <coughs> is that it turns out that plants don't need soil to grow. <laughs> That's right. And I remember in third grade having to demonstrate <laughs> to my class how to grow a plant, and the first thing you do right. is you fill a pot with soil, yep. and you put in the plant, and you add the water, but they don't need the soil. They don't. Well, didn't they ask you to grow an avocado plant when you were in school? No, I missed that oh, opportunity. Oh, too bad, too bad. Third graders love doing this one. You get two toothpicks and an avocado seed and a glass of water, and you stick the toothpicks on either side of the seed, and you fill the water glass up till it it submerges half of the avocado plant and just keep the water level at about that level and watch what happens and the next thing you know there's a taproot that comes out of the avocado plant it goes down into the bottom of the glass and the next thing you know there's a stem that comes out of the other part and some leaves come out we've taken that approach to growing plants and applied it to a larger scale and back in the 1930s there was a group of scientists at the University of California at Davis campus that says, you know what, I bet you we don't need soil. I bet you what plants really need is sunlight, an organic source of nitrogen, some micronutrients, and a fair amount of water. Now, the criticism of the original hydroponics, and that was called hydroponic farming, by the way, you'd say, well, that's going to use a lot of water. But if you compare the same amount of plant growth indoors in a hydroponic setting to the same plants grown outdoors in a soil-based irrigation system, the indoor situation uses 70% less water. Now there's another technology that's been developed even more recently. And this is very, very interesting. It's called aeroponics. And so you don't even need a thin film of water for this. You just need a mist that contains the nutrients and the, the roots will seek out that mist in a special device and absorb them from the air. Isn't that amazing? So can you give me a visual description or just a visual picture of what this would look like? You have this sure. building, it's, it's, it's rising upward oh, yeah. vertically, yep. and the plants are growing like in a greenhouse. They're growing on tables, and then they're sort of maybe piping That's where they get their water. So that it's not correct. oceans of water. Oh, no, no, it's no, not no. In fact, it's ponds. called thin film technology. So there's a very thin film of water that's actually necessary to get the plants all of their nutrients. And you can even grow corn and yeah. some of these other watermelons, some of these big... Name it. What would you like? <laughs> you see, that's why I can't okay. really tell you what they're growing inside. I know what I would like. Really great tasting tomatoes. Ah. And what makes me nervous about yeah. some of this is yeah. that tomatoes, once they start to go indoors, yeah. I mean, there's nothing like a great tomato you know, during tomato season at the end of the you. summer. I agree with Once you. Once they went indoors, they lost their flavor and they're all, they're they all mushy. They did. With Isn't that because they're well, indoors? Well, there's some notable exceptions. Somebody got the wise idea of finding out what makes food taste good. <laughs> oh, what's the basis for the outdoor tomato tasting so good? Why is there this difference? And that's something you can find here in this city. That's stress. You can. You can. Indeed. Isn't it? Indeed. A little bit of stress. Indeed. Put people in a living situation and have a little bit of stress. <laughs> that's right. The trick is to take the water away and allow those flavor molecules to concentrate and at the same time 
stress the plant just a little bit, not much, not enough to hurt it, just enough to make it taste great. So it looks like um, it is possible to, to grow food indoors that tastes great, and in, in this case with a vertical farm, you don't use yes, a lot of water. That's true. And the other advantage of a vertical farm, and it really is the summary of why you're proposing it, is that it's a closed loop system. That's right. And briefly, what does that mean? Well, closed loop means that you can recycle everything. So in an indoor farming setting where the temperature and humidity is controlled, by insulation, for instance, to control the temperatures, and dehumidification of the atmosphere to control the humidity. Well, when you dehumidify it, you can recycle that water right back into the nutrient film technology system. And so that makes a loop out of this rather than an open-ended thing of having to always bring water into the situation. So there's very little water that goes out except in the plant that you eat. We're going to imitate the best of the indoor farming practices as they currently exist. So we're not going to invent anything. We're going to build on their knowledge. But is that the scale that you're talking yes, about? Because I is. imagine you're talking about a, a slightly larger scale. Oh, we're talking about a much larger scale. And we're also talking about moving it much closer to where we live. Because in another 50 years from now, 80% of the world will live in cities or suburbs. So let's move the food close to where we live. That's, that's the basis for this, okay? We already know how to do it. Imagine a Lego box full of parts. And I can show you all the parts. And you know that those parts work because they've been derived from other usages. Now I'm going to put them together in a new way. And I'm going to make you a tall vertical farm as opposed to a flat indoor farm. And the only thing that's required here is uh, integration of engineering solutions. Won't we miss the family farm, though? As sure. we're talking, yeah, and I'm imagining these buildings rising up, and I understand sure. what all we may save, yeah. I also picture the farmland. I grew up in Wisconsin, and oh. once you get out of the main city, which is Madison, yes. the capital city, yes. it's farmland, and it's beautiful. This is true. And it does connect humans to the earth in a really fundamental way, and I that's wonder right. if we'll lose that. I have deep affection for Wisconsin because of the failed farming in Wisconsin. There's a wonderful treatise called the Sand County Almanac, and it's written by Aldo Leopold. It's about his father's farm. And it's an abandoned farm because farming of many kinds doesn't work in that latitude. The soil types are wrong and the climate is wrong. And so the farm failed. And so what did Aldo do? He observed the return of nature. What is remarkable about nature is that you walk away from a farm, and it's not just the farm in Wisconsin that Aldo Leopold's father had, but other farms, and within just a couple of years, yep. it comes back. It's the amazing, trees come it? back. It's Everything amazing. comes back. Yeah. They didn't go away. They just were in hiding. <laughs> we scared the hell out of them. <laughs> you know, there's a quote in the Bible about that. You know, we will put fear into the animals and plants of this world because we are the owners of them. But there's another quote that says, we also must be good stewards of the earth. How can we do both of those things unless we learn how to leave it alone? Thank you very much. You're quite welcome. Dixon Despommier is Emeritus Professor of Public Health and Microbiology at Columbia University and the author of The Vertical Farm, Feeding the World in the 21st Century. Farms in the city, well, that's just one way we might adapt to a world that might be quite different than the one every previous generation has known. But previous generations weren't actually changing the planet, and we are. 
I asked Joel Cohen, a mathematician and population and public health specialist at Rockefeller University, whether Homo sapiens could really adapt to what we're doing to the Earth. Yes, but at what cost and with what injury or benefit to humankind? We can adapt, but that doesn't mean we will like it. Give an example. In the last century, the tide gauge at the southern end of Manhattan, where I live, shows a rise in the average sea level of 25 centimeters, a quarter of a meter. Depending on what we do in the coming years and decades, that could go up by a meter and in much less time. If it does, the costs of defending the city by walls and changing infrastructure could be much higher than they were in the past. And so it's really under our influence how much cost we will impose on ourselves by how much we refrain from or contribute to the warming of the oceans. Well, people are very keen to talk about climate change as something that we're doing, uh, loss of habitat for uh, our fellow critters and so forth. That's another area in which uh, many people uh, get exercise. But the sort of the elephant in the room, and one that doesn't seem to have attracted too much attention recently, was the growth in population. You know, back at the end of the 20th century, people were worried about the population bomb and that this was going to, you know, <laughs> presage the end of humanity within, you know, a couple of generations. Now they're saying, no, by the mid-century, uh, we'll level off at, I don't know, 9, 10 billion people and everything will be hunky-dory. Do you see it that way? Well, the population bomb, the book by Paul Ehrlich, was published around 1968, and that was the all-time peak growth rate of the world's population, around 2.1% per year. Since then, it's come down to about 1.1% per year, and the average number of children per woman per lifetime has dropped from about five in 1950 to about two and a half today. So it's been an incredible revolution in childbearing and reproductive behavior in the last half century, and people anticipate that's going to go on and that fertility will continue to fall in the future. So we might achieve a steady state before 2050, or we might reach a steady state around 2050 or later. That really depends on how we educate women and provide contraceptive services and reproductive health services. You asked whether everything is going to be hunky-dory, and my claim is things are not hunky-dory right now. Half the world's population lives on $2 a day or less, and there are about a billion people who are chronically hungry. Unfortunately, a very large fraction of those are children, and that means that we are starving the brains of the next generation, which means that they will not have the capacity to learn and to acquire the technologies that we will need to deal with climate change problems and all the other kinds of problems that we're going to face. So I would say we are very far from hunky-dory at the moment, and unless we get our act together by assuring adequate food an adequate education, and adequate legal rights to a lot of people who don't have any of those good things right now, the world in 2050 could be a troublesome place. And it could also, if we do get our act together, could be a quite a wonderful place. And uh, I would envy my grandchildren who will enjoy it. 
One thing you didn't mention, and it's something that I've read a little bit about, because there was an article about this a couple of years ago in one of the science magazines, and that is the fact that we're very rapidly burning through some essential resources, uh, things like zinc and copper and, and so forth, uh, but also things that people haven't really heard about, uh, hafnium, terbium. These are things that are important in making electronics. The timescales, as I recall, for us, in fact, using up all the inexpensively available supplies of these things were you know, like 20 years, 50 years, something like that, less than a century. This yeah. sounds like a very imminent threat. Well, we could look for alternative technologies, and we could conserve and recycle the components that we do use. Right now, when you finish with a computer, in the United States, it largely goes to a landfill. In Germany, the store that sold it to you is obliged, under law, to take the computer back. And then it's disassembled and the gold and other metals in it are recycled. We need to change the whole concept of a linear throughput system into a circular one. You, you're speaking of adaptation to the limited resources of the planet, the limited capabilities for exploitation of the planet. And I can imagine that, uh, you know, people uh, living uh, in, in the first world might recognize this as a, as a problem. Obviously, some countries do and take steps. But on the other hand, as an individual, uh, I might say, hey, look, uh, you know, let them, let them conserve, let them recycle, let them pull the copper out of uh, some abandoned building. It's all fine for me. Uh, I'm just going to continue to live the, uh, the big life myself because for me personally, for my family— that's a, a better strategy. How, how can we get people to adapt here? We don't have a command and control economy, but we can influence the incentives through taxes and subsidies. I've mentioned two words that are not very popular. People like subsidies. People dislike taxes. But it amounts to the same thing. It's intervention and incentives. I think there's another way which we've underutilized, and that is to educate people. A lot of change comes when school children learn something and they influence their parents. So I think that if we educated the next generation about realities of the environment and of their responsibilities for the environment, we could have a positive effect on not only them and their generation, but their parental generation. Well, finally, Joel... Uh, if you can, look in that crystal ball, which I'm sure is in the second drawer of your desk, yes. and, <laughs> and look into the lives of, say, our grandchildren or great-grandchildren, perhaps. In, in what significant ways do you imagine it would be different than our own? I think it'll be different in a couple of very important ways. First of all, the world will be much more urban. Right now, it's about half rural and half urban. And by the middle of the century, it will be about two-thirds urban worldwide. And that means that we as collectively as the world need to build a city for a million people in the developing world every five days from now to 2040 to accommodate the projected increases in urban populations in developing countries. Every five days, another city of a million. That's one thing. The second thing that will be very, very different is aging. The baby boom generation is just entering retirement ages. And if you look at the ratio of elderly to working people, it takes off like a rocket and climbs quite steadily so that in the developed countries, something like a third of the population will be over the age of 60. So the number of elderly people in cities will be simply unprecedented. And there may be even higher concentrations of elderly in the countryside as the young people move to the cities. 
it's it's going to be a very different world, I would say. All right. Well, Joel Cohn, I want to thank you so much for uh, letting us uh, talk to you about the future of humanity. It's an important topic, worth a conversation. Joel Cohn is a professor at Rockefeller University in Manhattan. Coming up, science fiction writer William Gibson on what the future might hold for the techno-savvy. Are you an early adapter? It's Big Picture Science. William Gibson may not be on your mind as you sit at your computer, your thoughts and imagination deep in the ethereal ethers of the Internet, but he was there before you. Cyberspace is his term, coined when he penned the short story Burning Chrome in 1982. As a science fiction writer, he wraps his imagination around your future, ever so slyly asking, what's next? The answer to that, most immediately, is William Gibson's latest book, Zero History. It's the final in a trilogy that includes pattern recognition and spook country. In it, the author looks at where the frenetic churning of pop culture, techno-gadgets, and even fashion worship is taking us. Because his novel is set in the workings of the fashion industry. But even if you're not a trendsetter or follower or have never made a best-dressed list, Zero History speaks to how all of us have come to adapt to the current cultural techno-media maelstrom. I chose fashion as an industry that's actually information-based, although we don't really think of that. And it's also completely ubiquitous because everyone needs clothing of some kind. And the people who design it are working with actual codes and copying existing things. There's very little original fashion. Now, are you, are you taking a swipe at consumerism here, would you say? I mean, uh, material goods, but I mean, it, it's fashion, but it could perhaps have been iPods, technology. We crave novelty. We crave devices that, uh, that set us apart from the herd, if you will. I mean, that's what fashion's all about, I think. Uh, that's probably wired into our DNA. But uh, what sort of commentary is this on our lives? Is, is there a commentary, or is it simply the, the way into the storyline? I was looking for what it is that we do if we are, in fact, a relatively post-industrial society. The apparel industry is one of those industries in which we, if we can, for economic reasons, we farm out the actual manufacturing of the goods to countries which haven't quite yet attained post-industrial status. And if that's the case, what is it exactly that we do? We brand things, we design things, and we market things. What, what is that really post uh, industrial, or is that only post-industrial for, say, the United States? I mean, somebody's still manufacturing stuff, not us. Yeah, somebody's still manufacturing stuff, although the people who are manufacturing stuff, I'm sure, aspire to our position. So it's a tendency. Are you still a futurist? Do you regard yourself as a futurist? Did you ever, in the past, did you regard yourself as a futurist? Have you now or ever been? Um... I've always discounted my my own futurist credentials, but at the same time I've discounted the futurist credentials of other science fiction writers and most futurists. I tend to remember the, the failures rather than the successes when it comes to futurism. What I've always pretty consciously wanted to do is to find a number of ways to use the toolkit of science fiction as a way to interrogate the present. 
And that, in fact, is, uh, I believe, what science fiction really does. I, I don't think that Orwell wrote 1984 in 1948 about the future as much as he wrote it about 1948. And he wrote it about what he had seen going on during World War II. And it, it's phrased as one of those if-this-goes-on narratives. And it certainly works that way, but it, it makes equal sense as an analysis of the totalitarianism that he had seen. It makes equal sense as, as a way of looking at Hitler and as a way of looking at Stalin. Well, 1984 was kind of a cautionary tale then. And would you say that zero history is a cautionary tale? I'm thinking back to the beginnings of the Victorian era in England, mm -hmm. when the railways were first, you know, yeah. crisscrossing the countryside. And there were people who said, you know, this isn't necessarily a good thing, because the bucolic rural lifestyle of the English was going to be, you know, in a sense, obliterated by this new technology, despite the benefits. Is that a point of view of yours, that maybe the technology rush forward that we see today is, you know, is something to be cautious about? Well, part of my program as a science fiction writer has been to try to maintain a sort of uh, agnostic stance with regard to technology. Most technologies, it seems to me, are morally neutral until we do something with them. And the uses that, the uses that we put them to have moral value. That aside, the big story with human technology is always the unintentional results. The inventors of the internal combustion engine didn't anticipate possibly putting the global climate out of whack. I think the big story with technology is that the people who invent it don't know what other people are going to do with it. When scientists think about the existence of intelligent life on other worlds, and we do here at this SETI Institute, uh, given the trajectory that you've seen for our own society on this planet, if you were to kind of think forward another century, for example, maybe where we're going might give us some insight into where the aliens already are or already have been. Um, what would that suggest to you about what life on some other world might look like if it were, you know, just a few hundred years beyond our own? Well, you know, I, it's not a very positive point of view, but, but I think it's well worth considering that what we think of as intelligent life may have already resulted in its own extinction uh, in numerous other places because we're obviously quite capable of doing that ourselves and we've already caused the extinction of countless other species. So I think we'll have to see whether we're able to survive our own intelligence before we can project because presumed intelligent aliens, particularly ones who would be more advanced, would have been able to survive their equivalent of the state that we're now in. William Gibson, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. William Gibson is a writer and author, most recently, of Zero History.
Okay, we're hearing about human technological innovation as a way of adapting to a changing environment and how that adaptation is changing us. But why do we have to try so hard? I mean, why not just let evolution do its stuff? And evolve to fit with all the changes around us, with a changing climate, a changing technological landscape. Yes, it would be so much easier. Biological adaptation is, after all, how our species got this far. It would seem like a successful strategy, but do you have time to kill? Because you need hundreds of thousands of years to physically evolve to a changing world. That's the timescale evolution works on. But the point is moot, says paleoanthropologist David D'Augusta. We've done an end run around evolution anyway. Because what's allowed Homo sapiens to keep in the race this long is not the adaptive advantage of our opposable thumbs or our upright gait. It's no one physical trait. It's precisely because we're nimble and we change with the times. If we look at humans today, it's clear that we get by based upon the flexibility of our behavior. And in particular with tools, with technology. So we can adapt to the world and even adapt the world to us by changing our behavior. Now, the reason that we can do that is we did evolve larger brains, but now you're talking about something more specific than that. Right. Well, I would argue, I think the evidence would suggest that it's the flexibility in behavior and just the general intelligence that having those large brains gives us, and that's the actual advantage rather than just saying, well, okay, we've got a lot of stuff between our ears. Now, is this the reason when we look at our own ability as homo sapiens sapiens to be flexible and nimble in response to our environment, was that a reason why, say, the Neanderthals weren't able to make it as far as we did? Right. So I think the, the question of why a lineage didn't make it is one of the tougher questions to answer. And we can see that in the modern day when there's uh, various species of amphibians or even certain kinds of bees that today seem to be going extinct. And it's tricky to figure out why that is, even though, since they're living organisms, we have access to far more data about modern amphibians than we ever would about Neanderthals. But having, having kind of made that disclaimer, one of the best hypotheses for why the Neanderthal lineage may have gone extinct is that it's possible they lacked the ability to communicate through language the way that we can today and presumably uh, our ancestors could. One of the pieces of evidence is that when you find Neanderthal sites, they generally lack evidence of symbolic expression. You don't really find them with cave paintings at all or even things like beads or carved artifacts. Whereas with our ancestors at about the same time period, you do find those things. And so the argument is that Neanderthals may have lacked that symbolic capacity that's required for language. In other words, you would need to have symbolic capacity to talk about, well, what might happen tomorrow? A lot of it depends upon social organization. So I think it's safe to project that back into our past and say that the way we got by and our ancestors got by had a lot more to do with organizing each other and working together cooperatively and developing tools and using tools because when it comes to our physique, that's not really how we get by. We don't have you know, sharp teeth. We're not really very strong. So unlike things like lizards, I mean, if you're a cheetah, you can you can get by and be a, a good cheetah without ever really working too much with any other cheetahs. 
Now, if we look at the future of human adaptation or the, how we are going to adapt to a changing planet, and it's changing in many different ways, can paleoanthropologists say anything about what will happen in the future? I've, what is the saying? It's very hard to make predictions, especially about the future. But can one do that? Can you look at the past and suggest any kind of trajectory in ways in which humans will change? Sure, I think we actually can. The first thing to take from both a knowledge of our past as well as evolution in general is that any kind of biological changes are going to be slow relative to the human lifespan. Biological evolution takes a number of generations. So this is something that's a long process. So we're still evolving biologically. Absolutely. But the key distinction is we may, we're still evolving. That doesn't mean that we are adapting. And I know for most people may think of those two things as synonyms, but they're really not. Evolution simply means change over generations, from one generation to the next. So if we were to compare, say, the, the genomes of everybody on the planet today with the genomes of everybody on the planet 500 years from now, you can guarantee that those are going to be two somewhat different sets of genomes. It's not going to be the same. But that's not the same as saying there will be adaptation by natural selection. But how else would humans evolve except to adapt to changes around them? Because what again, other pressures would there be? Well, again, remember, evolution is simply change over time. Can you give an example of a change that would have been the outcome of evolution but wouldn't be adaptive? Yes, yeah, sir. You, could, you can make a good argument that, for the most part, changes in the frequency of different color of hair and eyes in the modern context. It's biological. Okay. It's going to change some from one generation to the next. But for the most part, it doesn't really have a significant effect on our ability to survive and reproduce. So when you said that to some degree that a paleoanthropologist or a scientist can predict how humans are going to change, is it only you can say that we are going to change, but you can't actually say what that change will be? Well, I think we can go a little bit further than that. We can say that there will be change, but it will not likely significantly alter our biology simply because we have mostly removed the impact of natural selection on our species. We try to give as many people as possible the chance to survive and reproduce. For example, you're wearing glasses and I also wear lenses. And however many years ago, 10,000 years ago, you and I would have been abandoned a long time ago because I can't see, you know, 10 feet in front of me without contacts or glasses. And that sort of thing that we're providing help to people that otherwise wouldn't make it. Is that, that's what you mean when you say that we're trying to control natural selection. I mean, that's one of the main goals of medicine is to keep as many people healthy and alive and functioning as they can. And so that reduces the impact of natural selection. Well, let's look at just two pressures that come to mind that are on the human population right now. And one is any adaptation that would be a result of climate change, whether warmer temperatures or, or so forth. You don't foresee any biological Again, not reaction bio to that. Not bio I don't foresee any biological reaction to climate change for two reasons. One is, again, as a species, we kind of make a living by adapting through our behavior. You know, in different parts of the world, there's very different climates, and we survive, people live there, by using tools to stay warmer where it's cold and stay cooler where it's hot. So I think that our main method of dealing with climate change will be to shift our behavior. As for the anatomy, our anatomy, our, our core biology, it's very unlikely that we would be able to adapt to climate change that way because it would require that some of us would be better suited to the new climate than others. 
and that those who happen to be better suited would survive and reproduce at a greater frequency than those who are less well-suited to the new environment. Can we take an example of what that might be? I mean, you said this is not going to happen, but let's say the average temperature now went up by 10 degrees or whatever it might be. What sort of biological changes would would help in a warmer climate? Well, typically we see that having uh, limb proportions where people who are taller and skinnier are able to shed heat better than those who are shorter and stockier, which is why if you look at modern human variation, people whose ancestors are mostly from near the equator, the limb proportions tend to be tall and skinny, whereas those whose whose ancestors are from the more Arctic regions, their limb proportions are different. So you could say, well, okay, if the world gets 10 degrees hotter, then you might suggest that, well, okay, those people with kind of the tall and skinny limb proportions would do better. But they wouldn't really do better for the most part because that's not probably going to determine how many kids they have or whether or not they survive. We've kind of separated how well suited our biology is to the environment from our survival and reproduction. So we've kind of defeated natural selection. I do want to say that that figure, I just pulled that out of the air of 10 degrees. That is not actually... It was a hypothetical. It's a total hypothetical. That is not what the climate scientists are suggesting, but I, I want to exaggerate it. Finally, how might we adapt to the changes in technological innovation? And one thing comes to mind is texting. Perhaps we could evolve to have smaller and more nimble thumbs because for some people it's very hard to text, yet it seems to be texting is with us for good. So will the people with smaller and more nimble thumbs be the ones that are the top of the heap? Well, I I don't know if I would venture to give a confident answer to that, but I would I would make a couple of observations. First, generally we adapt technology to us rather than the other way around. So one could presumably design somewhat larger keyboards or do what has already been done, which is to design software that seems to be able to almost read my mind so that even if I don't hit the right keys on the cell phone, it's able to auto-correct my misspelled gibberish into what I was trying to type. So I think that it's much more likely that, again, looking at how we get along as a species, we adapt the world to us, we create technology that works for us rather than the reverse. David D'Augusta, thank you very much for talking to us. Oh, thank you for having me. David D'Augusta is a paleoanthropologist with the Paleoanthropology Institute. And that's it for our program. Thanks to help from Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. And to support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute, and the SETI Institute, also our listeners. If you'd like to comment on the program, congratulate us, or sound off, please visit our website or our Facebook page. Want to support the show but are too busy surfing the net and shopping for shoes online? We've got the fix. Go to bigpicturescience.org's support page and download the Good Search toolbar. It takes less than a minute. The radio show will get a penny for every search and even more when you make purchases from the Good Shop. Make Big Picture Science your charity of choice and support us without any cost to you. Good Search and Big Picture Science, searching that makes a difference.